You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 29. Having already read the text this morning completely, we won't take the time to do that again, but we will be referencing uh, throughout today's sermon, Genesis chapter 29, referencing that full chapter text uh, together today. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we finished up Genesis chapter 28, talking about the experience that Jacob has with God uh, at that stairway to heaven as he really becomes a believer in and of himself. We talked about him moving from his parents' faith to his own personal faith, that he had grown up around uh, this worship of Yahweh and had been taught the covenant, had been taught the promises. Um, But we talked about God coming to him individually at this point and really uh, presenting himself as a God who can be trusted, a God who is to be believed, a God who is to be followed. And so we we talked about this being a transition point for Jacob where he moves from parental faith to personal faith. Um, This is his, uh, in the narrative sense, the first expression really of him putting his faith and trust in the God of his uh, grandfather Abraham and the God of his father Isaac. And so uh, God's working on his heart. God comes to him specifically. God's drawing Jacob, doing a, a supernatural work that only God can do. Um, but we see Jacob respond. Um, he responds in an attitude of worship um, at the end of that encounter. Um, and so we left off there with Genesis chapter 28. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 29 this morning. We do have For those that are interested, our um, PowerPoint notes posted on our Google Drive. Uh, So for those that would like to access those, um, you're more than welcome to do so through the link that's provided in our bulletin. But in Genesis chapter 29, we come to a passage where, again, we expect things to go well for Jacob based on the encounter that we see he has with God. God makes these promises of protection and provision, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to be guiding you and overseeing your life, and I'm not going to leave you until I accomplish all of these purposes in your life. And then we see Genesis 29 uh, happen, and we see Jacob's life sort of unravel a little bit. We see uh, some unfortunate circumstances play out that Jacob had not planned. In fact, he had planned contrary to the way Genesis chapter 29 plays out. Um, and so we want to reconcile a little bit this morning how we understand God's promises um, in light of the events of Genesis chapter 29. And so we'll begin by looking at our summary sentence for this morning. Um, we've also got our kids' summary sentence up here. Um, in our kids' notes this morning, there are some questions that I want you kids to listen out for to try to answer as we work through the text this morning. I've also provided you a condensed outline for you to fill in the blanks as well. Um, our summary sentence for our adults, Christians must recognize that we will always experience disappointment if we expect life to always go the way we planned, and if we expect the things of this world to bring us ultimate satisfaction in ways that only Christ can. As Christians, I think the, the, the running theme through this chapter is that we've got to recognize that we will always experience disappointment if we expect life to always go the way we planned for it to. And if we put our joy, our expectations into the things of this world to bring us ultimate satisfaction in ways that only Christ can. We're going to see how uh, both of these ideas are developed in Genesis chapter 29. For our kids, uh, what I would like for you to take away, our plans and desires for life cannot satisfy us like God's plans and desires. Our plans and desires for life cannot satisfy us like God's plans and desires. 
We see both of these things playing themselves out um, in this chapter. We see hopes placed in human relationships, whether it's Jacob uh, anticipating this relationship with Rachel, whether it's Leah uh, trying to coerce a relationship with Jacob through childbearing. We see constant disappointment. We see constant um, uh, disappointment in the fact that these things don't play out the way that these characters want them to. Um, life isn't going the way that, that Jacob planned, certainly. Um, he had built up in his mind, this is how my life's going to play out. This is how the next few years are going to play out. Um, and we see life not going the way that he planned. This is certainly not the way that Leah, li- Leah planned for her life to go either. I think as she's growing up, she certainly anticipates being the first choice for a man um, to be uh, the wife of, of, a, of a husband. I think she certainly grew up with aspirations of, of having a man love her and cherish her. And um, now she's thrust into a relationship where that's not going to be the case. And so life is not going how some of our characters planned for it to go. Um, and they are expecting things of this world to bring ultimate satisfaction. And we see that they are constantly presented with disappointment. In Genesis chapter 29, a couple of points that I want to make for you about the flow of the text. And then I'm going to give you several truths to remember as we close out our time together today. First of all, I want you to understand that God's people find encouragement because of God's special presence. God's people find encouragement because of God's special presence. And for our kids, Christians should be encouraged because God is always with us. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 1, it says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Now you read that and you think, well, there's not a whole lot there. But if you go back into the Hebrew and really understand the Hebrew wording there, um, it really relates to us that Jacob went on his journey. It carries the idea of lifted spirits in him continuing on his journey. You'll remember he's fleeing home because his brother hates him now because he deceived him and stole his blessing and stole his birthright. Um, he's having to leave his mom who he loves dearly and, and doesn't know when he's going to be able to come back to her. His dad uh, is potentially going to die very soon. And so he's kind of fleeing with nothing, has this experience with God in the wilderness And in chapter 29, verse 1, then Jacob went on his journey. The Hebrew language here communicates that his spirits are lifted, that he's now light on his feet. Um, There's a newfound joy in his journey. So in our notes, Jacob finds joy by trusting in God's provision. He's, He's able to spur on in his journey. He's able to carry on with the plans that mom and dad gave to him to go to this land, to find a wife, to find protection there. He spurred on to do this because of God's communication to him in chapter 28. He finds encouragement because he's trusting in God's special presence. Remember, we've talked about God's omnipresence, that all of creation enjoys God's omnipresence, that God is everywhere. But we see time and time again, God comes to his people in Scripture and promises to be with them. And so we talked several weeks ago, What's unique about God promising to be with somebody if he's omnipresent, if he's everywhere? I don't need a special promise that he's with me specifically. And yet I do because we said that specifically God is promising to be with his people in a unique way. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to work good in every circumstance of your life. Jacob finds encouragement here. He's had this experience. God has promised him, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to stay with you. And it lifts his spirits. It, um, 
it allows him to be spurred on in his journey. Jacob finds joy by trusting in God's promises of provision here. This translates for us today. All right, as we begin another week, as we start this week off with our Sunday gathering and we look forward to, for some of us, a week of work, some of us maybe a week of vacation that's coming, all kinds of circumstances are going to take place this week in all of our lives. And there should be a, an added joy in us as believers as we step out of this room today, as we separate from our church family. There should be um, a, a boost of encouragement as we leave trusting that God is going with us in a unique way, right? God's omnipresent. He's going to be with all creation all during this week. Every person on this planet is going to have God's omnipresence surrounding them. But the truth for the Christian is that God goes with us in a unique way, in a special way this week, and he works good in every circumstance that we face. Jacob finds joy. We too can find joy in that today. Secondly, Jacob experiences success in his pursuits. We talked about how do we reconcile um, some of the things that we see in this chapter with God's promises of provision and protection. Well, right off the bat, God guides uh, Jacob directly to connections with Laban. Uh, God's providence is at play once again here. You'll remember we talked about God's providence when we talked about the servant of Abraham journeying back to find Abraham's family and to find a wife for Isaac. And we see God directing his paths. God's not mentioned at all in the passage as doing anything, but we talked about how God oversaw uh, the servant, oversaw Rebecca coming, oversaw all the events playing out in a way that led Rebecca back to marrying Isaac. God's providence is at play at this chapter as well. There's no coincidences when God is specially with you. Let me say that again. There are no coincidences when God is specially with you. When we have God's promised presence with us, more than just his omnipresence, but his specific, active, good-working presence with us, there's no coincidences in our life. There's no accidents. Every uh, every detour that we experience from the plans that we make this week, none of that's coincidence, none of that's accident. All of the encounters that we have this week are divinely directed to us by God, I believe. God is specially with us. He's working good in all of our circumstances. God oversees every aspect of our life. God's doing that here in Jacob's life. He experiences God's direction. He's led directly to shepherds who know his uncle Laban, right? So, Jacob's trying to find his uncle Laban. He's got to make connections with Laban. He's got to uh, reestablish family relationships. If he's going to find a wife, mom and dad want him to marry somebody that comes from their family. So he's looking for uncle Laban. And he doesn't even really know where to start. He's never seen Laban, never met Laban. Um, Even the description that (coughs) Rebecca maybe could have given to him about Laban is going to be rough at best because almost 100 years have passed since Rebecca left home left her brother Laban to come marry Isaac. I mean, almost a century has passed since Laban has been with his sister Rebekah. So Rebekah has talked about Laban, has communicated to Jacob about Laban. I'm sending you to my brother Laban. He's gonna take care of you and provide for you and protect you. But he really has nowhere to start, nowhere really to to know where these people may even be located. They could have relocated for all he knows at this point. A hundred years have passed. God directs him directly to these shepherds who have insight about Laban, and then assure him that uh, a family member is coming who he can get more of his questions answered by. Back in our text, God directs Jacob here. 
It says that he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of all that the, wells, uh, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Now, Jacob has a conversation with them about basically getting off their tails and doing some work here. He says, this is a great part of the day. You should be feeding your flocks. Why are you, why are you sitting around and being lazy? And there's communication here that, oh, we wait for everybody to get here, and then we all move the stone together, and, and then we water the flocks, and, and then we go about our business. And uh, Jacob is anticipating the arrival of Rachel and, and certainly wants to have a, a good experience with her. It says that while he's still speaking with them in verse 9, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman. He was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. It's kind of a reverse order of what we see with the servant and Rebecca a few chapters back. Remember, Rebecca shows up, and the, the prayer is that Rebecca will be willing to water his flocks and it'll show her character. Jacob doesn't have any flocks to be watered, right? He comes alone. He comes by himself. And so he gets to demonstrate his character. He serves Rachel and, and shows a little insight into his heart. It also reminds us that Jacob's not that, that, that mama's boy, that, that wimpy boy that we talked about sometimes gets presented to us. Esau being the outdoor manly guy, Jacob being the indoor guy that uh, just hangs around mom all the time. Here's a guy who moves a stone by himself and begins to water flocks where these other shepherd guys are like, it really takes a group of us to do this. And so we see some strength here by Jacob. We see some character uh, by Jacob as he wants to serve his family members here. Jacob's experiencing success, and it's a success that God had promised to him. God's directing his path. But we also see here that Jacob seems to fail in his acknowledgement of God. Uh, big differences here, we've already talked about a little bit um, from what we see with Abraham's servant. There's no prayer prior to finding Rachel. Um, remember, Abraham's servant prays and says, okay, I'm here to find a wife for Isaac. God, direct me to the right woman. I have no idea who I'm supposed to pick. I have no idea where I'm supposed to go. Complete reliance upon God. Jacob seems to move forward a little bit more in self-reliance here, sees Rachel, serves Rachel, and kind of moves forward, all right? He has discussions with Laban, kind of similar to Abraham's servant. It says, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him, embraced him, kissed him, brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. Laban said to him, surely you're my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. You'll remember, the servant comes to Laban, and um, they begin having conversations, and the servant begins to, to worship God and praise God and thank God for directing his paths and, and overseeing this whole process. Jacob's not necessarily rebuked for it in the passage, but it's certainly a glaring absence. If we're comparing the two stories, uh, Jacob seems to fail in his acknowledgement of God and God's provision here. Um, no praise after finding Laban. Implication for us. God's people often pursue his blessing naively, forgetting their unresolved sins. God's people often pursue his blessing naively, forgetting their unresolved sins. 
Everything seems to be going great here for Jacob, and it's easy to forget about his sinfulness of deceit, right? God has come to him in the wilderness. God has made promises to him. God is directing his paths here. God is connecting him to Laban. Everything seems to be going great, and it's going to all come to a screeching halt. It's tied back to Jacob's sin, right? Lest we as the reader think that Jacob gets away with his deceitful actions, we're going to see that what he sows, he reaps. Um, that he was dishonest, that he was impatient, uh, that God had promised him the blessing, but we see him acting deceitfully and lying to his father, um, acting impatiently. And we're going to see that that comes back to uh, to be reaped by, by Jacob, that he's sown this, he's going to now reap some of the consequences of his actions. We have to be careful as God's people that we don't pursue his blessing and rely upon his promises and think that that our sinful actions are simply forgotten and, and we don't bear consequences for it. Um, it's easy to think that Jacob's just going to move past his actions in chapter 27 and that he's just going to be able to plow forward, um, but we see that that's not the case as we move forward into our text. Second point, God's people are not exempt from the consequences of their sins. God's people are not exempt from the consequences of their sins. And for our kids outline, Christians experience consequences for their sins. Just because we're, we're part of God's people, just because we've been adopted into his family, God does not excuse us from the consequences of our sins. That when we sin, when we rebel, God is certainly ready and willing and able to forgive us when we confess our sins. He does forgive us of our sins, but God does allow the consequences of our sins to play out. Remember, we talked about him including those in his plans but he certainly doesn't exempt us from the consequences of our sins. As we continue to move forward in our notes, Jacob must learn how to serve before he can be served. Remember, the prophecy is that the older is going to serve the younger. The destiny of Jacob is that he's supposed to take over the family and everybody's supposed to be serving him, including the older brother Esau. But before Jacob will be able to assume that position where he has servants underneath him and his family is following him, Jacob has to learn how to serve before he can be served. Laban extends hospitality. And if you read the text here, it says as, uh, at the end of verse 14, he stayed with him a month, Jacob did with Laban. And then verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? You read that and initially you're thinking, oh, this is, this is a... This is a humble move by Laban. He's going to give the guy a job. He's going to employ him. There's some underlying tones here that the commentators bring out in the Hebrew language that, that show that essentially what Laban is saying is the hospitality is not going to continue. You don't just get to stay here and be a guest with us. If you're going to continue to be here, you've got to earn your keep. Uh, you've got to start working. You've got to start contributing. Um, and you've got to be a benefit to us. And so the hospitality train's about to end You've got to start contributing if you're going to stay here. And so Laban comes to him and presents a proposal to him. He says, you can stay. Uh, you can work for me. Let's talk about wages. Laban's a picture of Jacob here. He acts for his best interest using deception. We learn about Laban's motivation as this chapter unfolds further. But essentially, Laban's motivation here is, I've got a guy who's a great worker, who has come from... Uh, a great family. I certainly want him employed with my business. I'm going to benefit from his presence here if I can keep him here. 
and, and I can potentially do it in a way where it doesn't cost me much because at this point, I think Laban would have already started to pick up on uh, the feelings that Jacob would have had towards Rachel. And so he proposes and says, you know, what, what, what are your wages going to be? And Jacob very quickly says, I'll work for you seven years for Rachel. I'll work for you seven years for Rachel. Laban wants to turn a family member into a servant for his financial benefit. But as we're going to see as this unfolds, this also is a great opportunity for, sadly, for Laban to pawn off his daughter, his older daughter, that no one seemingly wants to marry. Um, this is an opportunity for him to, to get rid of Leah um, and to benefit financially by having Jacob work for him. It's all motivated by personal gain, and that's not too unfamiliar from what Jacob was doing in his actions towards Esau and his father, working for his own personal gain. Secondly, Jacob must learn that deception is not an appropriate way of operating. This is a great teaching tool that I think God uses in Jacob's life. If Jacob gets away with the deception, he learns no lessons that it's wrong to interact with people in the way that he interacted with his father, the way he interacted with his brother, um, the way that he yielded to his mom's ideas of the deception. Jacob's going to learn a very difficult lesson that deception is not an appropriate way of operating. The agreement there is that we're going to work for uh, seven years and then I'm going to get Rachel. says that um, in the description of the two, um, verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Scripture is very clear in the comparison between the two that one of the girls is pretty and one of them is not. Uh, that Rachel's very attractive and Leah's not appealing to the eye. Um, that she's not considered beautiful. She's not considered attractive. And again, Jacob's affections are tied seemingly to the physical appearance of Rachel. Um, Jacob wants to marry her, obviously. Um, his emotions are tied to her. And so he agrees to work seven years in his mind to be able to marry Rachel, we skip down to um, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not done in our country Uh, It's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and then we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Maybe a question worth asking here is how was Jacob deceived um, in this situation? I mean, how do you make the mistake of, of marrying the wrong woman? How do you go through an entire night with a woman and then wake up and realize that you've been with the wrong woman? Um, I think it's also worth wondering what's the involvement of the girls here, right? Rachel, uh, we, we, we would be led to believe kind of reciprocates the same feelings towards Jacob. She certainly didn't slap him when she, when, he, when she was kissed by him at that initial greeting. She seems excited about his presence, much like Rebecca was excited when the servant came and said, hey, looking for a wife for Isaac. Um, where was Rachel in all this? Is she, is she locked up by her dad so that she can't spoil the plan? What's Leah's involvement? Is she, uh, is she also in love with Jacob and maybe going along with dad's plot here thinking, okay, 
We can deceive Jacob, and then Jacob will have to love me. He'll have to view me as his wife uh, because he'll be married to me. We don't know. We don't know what the girl's involvement is. Um, for Jacob and his deception, it's probably tied to the fact that, uh, for one, she would have been veiled uh, throughout the wedding ceremony. Um, and even going into the tent together, she would have been veiled. Um, electricity wasn't a benefit for them at the time. And so it's late at night, you're in a tent, uh, you can't see well. Um, and it parallels really uh, the story of uh, how Jacob deceived his father, right? That his eyesight wasn't well, presented himself as Esau. Um, and dad, again, couldn't discern the difference between the two. More than likely, Laban would have doctored up Leah in such a way that she would have very much uh, been seen as Rachel. Um, wine would have been involved in the, in the ceremony. Um, and so it's very likely that, that Jacob wasn't thinking or seeing clearly. You know, he's excited about getting married. He's, uh, he's potentially uh, intoxicated a little bit there um, and, and maybe influenced in a way where he doesn't, again, discern that he's marrying the wrong woman. But certainly in the morning, he recognizes that he has been duped, that he has um, experienced a similar deception to what he did towards his father. Laban's response here is to kind of pass off blame towards Jacob. Hey, you're not following our customs, right? Like, like this is your fault, actually. Like, don't, don't be mad at me. I'm simply going along with our customs here. Our custom is to marry the older before we marry the younger. Um, and it's probably a lesson for Jacob to learn once again that the, the, the rights of the firstborn should be respected. You know, he kind of underskirts uh, his brother, steals and swipes from his brother, and this is a, a slap in Jacob's face. Laban says, we don't operate that way here. We give preferential treatment to the older versus the younger, and that's why I gave you Leah, my daughter. Um, so it's another lesson, I think, that Jacob has to learn. Laban's actions reveal to Jacob the error of his way. I think for the first time, Jacob probably comes to grips with how Esau felt and how his dad felt. What's striking here in this text is you don't see a ton of outrage from Jacob like you might would have expected here, right? Like he's, he's upset, he's frustrated, he brings it to Laban's attention, but Laban gives him an explanation and says, if you want Rachel, you work for me seven more years. And we don't see any dispute by Jacob. Most of the commentators agree, Jacob's eyes are open to what he's done here. God uses this situation, similar to maybe how uh, Nathan comes to, to King David, Remember, and presents the story of the lamb and, you know, Jacob or uh, David's infuriated and says, we got to kill this guy for, for stealing from this other guy. And Nathan says, you're the guy, David. Like you took another man's wife, like you deserve death. And then we see David's demeanor and everything change about that whole situation. I think there's some, there's some understanding here that Jacob's demeanor changes because he recognizes what I'm feeling here, my anger can't be justified because I'm just as guilty. I did the exact same thing. My father-in-law did this to me, but I did this to my dad. I did this to my brother. I dressed up as somebody that I wasn't. I stole something that was not mine technically at that point, had not been given to him by God directly yet. And so any anger that he feels about what Laban's done seems to be squashed pretty quickly as it, as it kind of plays out and he reconciles the fact that I'm guilty of doing the exact same thing. The implication for us in this passage, God's people often find their sin coming back on them to discipline them. I put a note here. You remember Paul, when he was Saul, was guilty of stoning Christians and condoning the stoning. It's probably not by accident that God allows Paul to also be stoned. 
to also be persecuted in the same way that he was persecuting other Christians. Jacob's guilty of deception. He ends up getting burned by deception. I think it's a, a reminder to us. It ought to be a reminder to us that when we make willful, sinful decisions, and I'm not talking about, you know, just uh, daily mess-ups where we're still working out the, the sanctification in our life and we're still fleshly at times. I'm talking about willful, planned uh, sinful actions that we partake in. Um, we should not believe, I don't think, that, that we can simply confess those things and not bear the consequences of those things. And oftentimes, the way that we sin comes back to bite us directly, and God uses it in the form of discipline. Um, this is a great reminder to us here. Jacob, deception. He ends up getting burned by deception. Um, he's going to get burned throughout his life by deception. Um, We'll talk more about that here, I think, in just a few minutes. But um, God's people often find sin coming back on them to discipline them. Number three, God's people are called to respond biblically in bad circumstances. <coughs> God's people are called to respond biblically in bad circumstances. For our kids' outline, Christians need to trust God when life goes bad. We're called to respond biblically in bad circumstances. In my notes, I put, even when life doesn't seem fair, there is a right way to respond. Jacob has worked hard for seven years. There's no indication in the passage that he's, that he's uh, not done his best, that he's really given himself for seven years. He's earned the right in his mind to marry Rachel. And there was probably a lot of frustrations when he realized he didn't get Rachel. Um, and it would be easy to excuse some poor behavior by Jacob moving forward from this. But what we find in the text is that God doesn't excuse his actions here. It says in verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. God kind of assesses the situation Jacob ends up getting married to Leah and to Rachel. Like I said earlier, we could dispute as to whether God ever really intended Jacob to marry Rachel. There was no prayer at the beginning. There was no guidance from God that this was the woman to marry. Maybe all along, had, had Jacob really prayed and pursued God's will, maybe he would have led him to marry Leah the whole time. We don't know. But God seems very concerned by the fact that Leah is not treated the way that she should have been treated as his wife. And God comes to her and God shows grace to her, and God shows favor to her uh, in ways that have messianic implications, right? As we see her start to bear children, um, she's bearing all the important children, right? Like she, she bears Levi, who ends up producing all the, uh, the Levitical priesthood individuals, right? She bears Judah, who's going to produce kings and is going to produce Jesus, right? God comes to Leah and says, Leah, I'm going to show favor upon you. You're getting the raw end of the deal in this situation. Jacob's not loving you like he should. He's not taking care of you as a wife like he should. And God comes to her and shows special favor upon her. I think Jacob had a responsibility to love Leah. Right? Bad circumstance. Life's not going the way that Jacob planned. But I think as Christians, we have to believe and we have to understand that God expects us to respond biblically when life doesn't go the way that we plan for it to. I think God expects Jacob to love Leah, right? He's, he's, he's a product of his own deception, 
right? So it can't just be Jacob waving his hands and saying, I'm innocent in this situation. I shouldn't have the wrong wife. Well, no, you're guilty of what you've been doing yourself, and you're bearing some of the consequences of that now. And I think Jacob was expected to love Leah, and I think God's response to Leah reveals that expectation. We talked about Leah kind of getting the raw end of the deal here too. Um, she's, she's, she's not loved by her husband in the same way that Rachel is, right? In verse 30, it says, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He favors Rachel, which again is right in tune with how his family operates, favoritism, right? Mom and dad showed favoritism to their kids. Jacob learns that favoritism and he shows it towards his wives here. Jacob had a responsibility to love her, but Leah had a responsibility to find contentment in God's love. We talked about this earlier. Miss Denise brought up some of these points here where Leah begins to bear children, and each time she bears a child, her anticipation and hope is that it's going to change the relationship she has with Jacob. Remember, she's a girl that's not wanted by anybody. Right? She's the older, and the only reason Rachel maybe isn't married yet, she's beautiful, she's stunning, we don't know how old she is, but the fact that Jacob travels here and, and, gets, and gets the luck of the draw here that she's not already married is really a testimony to how unwanted Leah was, right? Women would have been married off pretty quickly in this culture. The first one, the older has to get married first, and, and Leah is not pretty, and she's not attractive, and, and she's not wanted. And, and, and dad pawns her off, basically, in deception here and sets her up for failure by giving her to a man that's not going to love her. She's bound in a marriage now with a sister who will always be loved more than her. But we see her faith increase, as Miss Denise brought up earlier. She bears children every time thinking, this is going to make a difference in my relationship with my husband. It says, And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. That first name is tied to to God seeing her. God has looked upon her. She says, Now that I have a son, maybe my husband will see me and notice me. Maybe Maybe he'll come to grips that I'm also his wife. And she has another son that says, maybe now I'll be heard by my husband. Then a third son, maybe now my husband will really want me and really value me and really want to be attached to me. And it's not until that fourth son, that, that son named Judah, says, and she conceived again and bore a son. This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. She comes to grips here. She, she comes full circle at the end here and says, I'm not looking for affection from my husband anymore. My joy is not going to be wrapped up in how my husband responds to this. Instead, I'm going to give due praise to God for what he's doing in my life. Leah has a responsibility to find contentment in God's love, and she finds that here at the end of this chapter. Life hasn't played out the way Jacob wanted. Life hasn't played out the way Leah had planned. Both of them have responsibilities to respond in a certain way. I think God had anticipations that Jacob would love Leah despite that not being his choosing. Leah has a responsibility to find contentment, not in a husband's love, but in her heavenly father's love. The implication for us here, God's people experience the special presence of God in times of blessing 
and correction. All right, we said, how do we reconcile God's promises in 28 with what's playing out in chapter 29? Jacob still has God's special presence here, and it's in the form of correction, right? Jacob needs to be molded into a man who recognizes his faults and his sins. His character needs to be changed. If God just excuses the great deception that he did towards his brother and his dad, Jacob doesn't learn the lesson, doesn't really come to grips with his sin, and potentially continues to operate in that way, continues to deceive others. I think he comes to grips when Laban really fools him, and he says, okay, this is exactly what I'm guilty of. God's special presence is still with Jacob all through this chapter as he works to correct his character. As we close, some truths that I want you to remember from this chapter, things that I think are important for us to take away from this weird soap opera type story where, again, people are, are living their lives out and it's not really turning out the way they planned or designed for it to. First truth to remember, number one, God's people are not exempt from the reaping-sowing principle. They're not exempt from the reaping-sowing principle. I think it's, again, important for us to note that sin is hard to stop. Yes, it can be confessed. Yes, it can be forgiven. But oftentimes we open up a door to consequences that we're not ready to to pay. You'll see uh, as we continue through Genesis, um, Isaac favored Esau. Jacob favors Rachel. This leads to all kinds of tension in their family in the next chapter. Um, It leads to tension in their offspring, right? Jacob favors Joseph, much like his dad favored Esau. This leads to tension with the brothers, and they want to get rid of Joseph, and they end up deceiving their dad, right? They take a coat, and they dress it all up and present it as 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 a product of an animal, Uh, stealing his son away, and his son has simply been sold into slavery. Consequences that continue to flow from sinful actions. Secondly, marriage, sex, and family make poor idols. I think we definitely should walk away from this chapter realizing that all three of these things make poor idols. The Bible always reveals the joys of marriage being tempered with its difficulties. One commentator pointed out the fact that marriage always is shown in Scripture to remind us that Jesus is what we need, not marriage. Marriage is never presented as this ultimate goal in Scripture that if you can just get married and have kids, then you've arrived. It's always presented in Scripture with the difficulties, the joys and the difficulties that come with it. And it's always presented in such a way that it points us to our great need for Christ. Marriage, sex, and family make poor, poor idols. Jacob finds disappointment in his pursuit of love, right? Everything seems to be tied to to obtaining Rachel. She's his object. In fact, when the seven years are up, it's basically, give me Rachel. I've earned the right to go into Rachel. I've earned the right to be with Rachel. And he experiences disappointment when he's given Leah instead. We're gonna see even in chapter 30 that Jacob's relationship with Rachel isn't always what it was uh, thought to be, and some of the tension that exists there between their relationship. Leah fails to find acceptance and identity through her children. She wants to be seen, heard, and loved by her husband. Everybody has these expectations. Everybody has these idols that are kind of presented here uh, around marriage and sex and family, and all of it produces disappointment in the lives of these characters. Number three, in the morning, it's always, always, always Leah, nothing here satisfies us like Christ can. 
many of the commentators that I was studying pointed out the fact that in all of our pursuits here in this earth, we always wake up to Leah. And if we're honest with ourselves, those of us that are married here, at some point in your marriage, first week, first month, first year, we all woke up and realized this isn't who I thought I was marrying. Right? In the dating process, in the engagement process, we build our spouse up to be this, this individual who, who meets our needs, who, who's the perfect embodiment of our love that we have. And, and this is the end-all person for us. This is our soulmate. And at some point in the marriage, you wake up and you say, this person's not perfect. This person has flaws. This person is sinful. This person frustrates me. This person isn't who I thought they were. Right? the sooner we can come to grips with the fact that the gifts that God gives to us are not meant to provide ultimate satisfaction to us, it's the moment that we're able to really enjoy the gifts the way that he means for us to. Right? The moment that we realize that our spouse is not to bring ultimate satisfaction to us is really the time when we can ultimately love them the way that we're supposed to. We can love them through their flaws. We can love them through the difficulties in our marriage. Jacob wakes up and realizes, this isn't who I thought I was marrying. Uh, and he doesn't show love to Leah. He doesn't love her the way that he would have been called to. Number four. The lack of heroes in this story remind us that we don't climb the ladder to God. Going back to what we said in chapter 28. There's a stairway to heaven. And Jesus alludes to it in the New Testament. And Jesus says, I'm the stairway. You read chapter 29 and you say, Where's the hero in this story? Where's the person that's doing what they're supposed to be doing in this story? Who's the person that I'm supposed to emulate in this story? And it goes back to the fact that scripture does not present characters to us that we are supposed to be like as though these are the individuals that achieved righteousness. These are the individuals that that did good things and, and got saved through it. Right? The lack of heroes in this story remind us that we don't climb the ladder to God like every other religion says, right? Every other religion says, you want to get to God, you've got to do things to earn his favor. I hope we can read chapters like this and, and see the flaws of God's people and say, there is room for me in God's family, right? I can see the screw-ups and I can see the mistakes and I can see the lack of faith and, and I can praise God and say, there's got to be room for me in there because this is the, 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 the worst bunch of people that I've ever seen. Right? These people are not living out the way that I would expect them to. These people are not doing what you would expect them to do if they're God's children. And then ought to remind us that there is room in God's family for us because it's Christ. It's Christ who ascends the ladder to God. It's Christ who is the bridge gap for us. It's Christ who is the ladder. Whereas every other religion says we have to work our way to God. Number five, oftentimes God puts people in our life who typify the faults we possess to help reveal our sins to us in order to sanctify us. You, you read about Laban here and you, you think, man, what a scoundrel. You feel like Jacob probably is so frustrated with this guy. And again, you step back and you say, these guys are, these guys are the same people, right? Like these guys are self-interested and they will do whatever it takes, no matter who it hurts, to get what they want. And it was a reminder to me as I was studying this, so oftentimes the people that cause the biggest frustrations in our life are oftentimes the people that we are most like. Right? The things that frustrate us about somebody are the things that are probably some of our biggest flaws. And I think it's helpful to realize that God oftentimes uses people like this in our life to reveal the sin that's in us. 
He uses these type of individuals to sanctify us. I think God uses Laban here in this story to to help Jacob see his own uh, deception, his own ploys, his own plots to help sanctify Jacob's character. Number six, God loves those who others don't love. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 reminds us of the type of people that God seems to enjoy using the most um, because ultimately it results in his glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God grants Leah, a woman who was unwanted by her husband, unwanted by her dad, unwanted by the other men in the area, he grants Leah the right to the messianic line. In my notes, I put the good news of the gospel is that God chooses the ugly Leahs and loves them like the gorgeous Rachels. You see this picture and you think, well, Rachel's the one that's going to be the one that the Messiah comes through, right? She's the pretty one. She's the loved one. This is the one that God's going to choose to to bring the Messianic line through. And God operates completely differently. He comes to Leah and opens her womb and gives her the children and gives her the, the Messianic line. It's a reminder to us that God chooses us in our in our sinful rebellion, in our ugliness, in our taintedness, and he loves us like we're the gorgeous Rachel. He changes us and turns us and recreates us. Um, that's the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. That's how God operates. And then lastly, number seven, God always works good in situations involving his children. <coughs> he, uh, he always works good in situations involving his children. This is a crummy situation on the surface. Jacob loves a woman and gets married to her sister by accident. And then he marries the one that he loves, and somehow gets stuck with two other women. And so he's got four women in his house that he's bearing children with, and and they all seemingly hate each other, and they're jealous of each other, and there's strife, and the strife continues with the kids. But there's good that God works in this situation. At some point, these patriarchs have to start having more than one child if they're going to grow into a nation, right? God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Here's one son, Isaac. And then Isaac gets Rebekah, and they have two sons, and, and the chosen one is Jacob, and, and Esau's kind of, yeah, you can come over here, but you're not going to be part of the promised line, right? And so now we got Jacob, and we're not really growing into a nation. But as we're going to see over the coming chapters, God works good in this situation. I don't know that it was by design that he wanted, uh, in the ideal situation, for Jacob to have four women bearing children to him, but he certainly works good in this circumstance. And 12 sons come out of this. And they start to have children, and it starts to set up what happens in Egypt over 400 years, right? God protects them with one of the dominant empires at that time. They, they grow into this great nation without being squashed because Egypt protects them. God's working all kinds of good and building this nation and keeping his promises. Even in the midst of situations and circumstances these people didn't choose, right? Life's not playing out the way Jacob planned for it to but God works good in it. And that's where we get assurance that we should respond biblically when life doesn't play out the way we plan for it to. We can respond biblically and trust him knowing that good is going to come from it, right? Chris has been talking to us for weeks now about an individual who, who left everything to go to Uganda to be a missionary, contracts malaria. His wife follows him there and has kids with him. And now he's gone, 
That doesn't seem like a fair payoff for somebody who signed up for foreign missions. Lauren posted on the city about our friends from Snowbird who, who are in a country that we can't even talk about because of security reasons. They have a child nine weeks early get flown to Spain, right? The baby's having all kinds of complications, all kinds of handicaps. The doctors in Spain are recommending that life support be pulled because of the handicap issues. Doesn't seem like a fair payoff for somebody who said, you know what, I'm going to leave home and country to go to the foreign mission field. It's not how you draw up your life, right? Life doesn't always play out the way that we planned for it to. And certainly the things that God gives us like spouses and children can't bring ultimate satisfaction because if they do and they're taken away from us, then what does that say about our joy? And this chapter reminds us that life doesn't always play out the way that we want it to. And things that God gives us always disappoint us if we put our hope and satisfaction in them. It's a reminder to us that only Christ can satisfy. And it's a reminder to us that God always works good even when life isn't playing out the way that we want it to. So our two points of application, and we've got kids application and adult application, and we'll close. First, we must be careful to not overvalue anything in our life, realizing we will always wake up to Leo. Whether this is marriage, whether you're banking everything, your life being fulfilled once you finally get married or once you finally have kids or whether you finally get into the right career, all of that will bring disappointment at some point. All of that at some point you wake up and you say, I'm laying next to Leah, not Rachel. If your satisfaction is in anything in this world besides Christ, you will always wake up and say, behold, Leah in the morning and not Rachel. C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that if there are desires in us that can't be satisfied in this world, then it means we've been created for a different world. He talks about the fact that we never get Rachel here. Why? Because Rachel's not of this world, right? That ultimate satisfaction is not here. We can't obtain it. It only comes through Christ, and it only fully comes through Christ when he returns and we enjoy him forever. We must be careful not to overvalue anything in our life. Number two, we must be prepared for life to not always go the way we want and trust that God is still working it out for good regardless. So for our kids, God always works good when life is going bad. We must be prepared for life to not always go the way we want and trust that God is still working it out for good regardless. God's working good in the life of Chris's friends in the midst of this loss. God's working good in the midst of the Barry family that Lauren brought up from Snowbird in the midst of their challenges with their child right now. God was working good in the midst of Jacob marrying the wrong woman. It's the woman that God chooses to bring Jesus through. Thanks be to God that, that this happened and that he used it for good purposes because ultimately our salvation is tied to this story. If Lee is not brought into this in some form or fashion, Judah's not born. And Christ doesn't come through that line. And God saw fit to, to take a messy situation, a situation that was not by design by any of the characters in the story. And thanks be to God that he's the great creator and the great designer. And he says, let me take the messy situation and make a masterpiece out of it. And it's a reminder to us that God is always working good. And it's also a reminder to us all through this chapter that nothing in this world can satisfy us the way that Christ can. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for stories like this in Scripture where we see just the raw attitudes and behaviors of, of your chosen people. And God, it reminds us that, uh, that the greatest hero of Scripture is certainly not a human character because 
Every human character we encounter in your word is flawed. And they show themselves to be sinful. Whether it's Jacob and his deception and his failure to love the wife that you gave him in Leah. Whether it's Laban and his self-interest and his lack of love for his daughter and how he sets her up for failure and how he deceives his son-in-law. Whether it's Leah who initially believes that the affection of her husband is more important than anything and we see her time and time again hoping and praying that another child will bring the love that she desires. God, we're thankful that in all the the characters that we see, it simply reminds us that, that we need a better hero. We need a better a better individual, a better human being that can be the example for us to follow, that can ultimately be our salvation. And God, we thank you that you sent Jesus as the God-man to be that for us. That you sent an individual who was uh, without deception, who understood his his role with you and and understood the uh, the, the need to be obedient to you and to submit himself to you. We thank you for Jesus and all that he is for us. And God, I pray that as we uh, operate in the life that you've blessed us with, that we would never elevate a gift, a, a relationship, a career, an object of anything that you've given to us to a status where we believe it will bring us ultimate satisfaction. God, I pray that we would, we would recognize the disappointment prior to us experiencing that. God, help us to to receive the gifts that you've given to us in an appropriate way where we can love those things and cherish those things appropriately, using them to point us back to you as the great giver of the gift. God, I pray that you'd guard and protect our marriages, that our, our men and women would never believe that their spouse can bring them ultimate satisfaction. God, I pray that Uh, You would protect us from believing that lie because ultimately that lie causes us to leave our spouse when they don't. God, I pray that we would love our spouses through their flaws, that we would would love them in the ways that you've called us to, in the way that you love the flawed church as your bride, and in the same way you work to present the church in all its glory on that day, that we too would work to uh, be a tool that you use to sanctify our spouses. God, I pray that you'd protect our, family, our, our parents from uh, wrapping up their joy and contentment in their children. Um, God, I pray that we would see kids as a gift from you to be enjoyed by you, but ultimately to point us back to you. God, I pray that as we, we go through this week and we experience things that we did not plan, all of us will have circumstances this week that we did not choose. God, help us to be reminded constantly that you are working good and that your plans are better than any plans that we can make. Help us to find encouragement in that you are specially with us this week. That you're omnipresent, but you're specifically with your people in a way that works good for them in all circumstances. Praise you and thank you for your goodness. We ask that you would continue to grow us in our faith. Use whatever means necessary. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.